Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Pastor Chad and his family still on vacation in California, and he asked me if I would talk with you just a little bit about uh, the Supreme Court decision that was just made. In light of their ruling on same-sex marriage, some people have been calling our church over the last few days and wondering about our response, you know, like, where do we stand? And I want to draw your attention to something called an evangelical affirmation on marriage. It originated with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It was published in Christianity Today. And you can find that article on cbconline.org slash marriage. It pretty much summarizes where we stand as a church. Pastor Chad affirms that statement. And you can pick up a copy out there in the floor if you want to have it. I want to say just a bit more about this. Uh, I want to start by quoting a verse in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I think we have to start with this by mourning our own sin. We have failed to model the biblical ideals of marriage that we say we cherish so dearly. The church is filled with sex outside marriage, sex before marriage, addictions to pornography, uh, the church is filled with unhappy marriages. The church is filled with divorce. So we haven't shown the world what a picture of a beautiful, God-honoring, biblical marriage is supposed to be. Is it any wonder then that the world wants to redefine marriage? And secondly, we have failed to love those who don't share our views. We failed to love the LBGT community. So we need to start by praying. Dear God, would you show us how we have failed you, and would we, you show us how we have failed the world that we're supposed to love, that needs your love. So help us to repent. Now having said that, the Bible clearly teaches this enduring truth that biblical marriage consists of one man and one woman. Biblical marriage is a gift from God. Biblical marriage is the chief cornerstone of society. It's designed to unite men and women and children in loving, nurturing, and safe environments. So here at CDC, we will endeavor to teach the truth about biblical marriage in a way that brings healing to a sexually broken world. We're going to affirm that all persons, including LGBT persons, are created in the image of God and deserve dignity and respect. And we're going to strive to maintain our religious liberty. So uncivil outrage and ungodly panic are not the proper responses of those people that are confident that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He is ruling and reigning over all things. I mean, God was not surprised by this ruling. And as I read the Bible, He is still building His church. And you look at Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and you know this, His kingdom and His truth are marching on. Christ and His people win in the end. So Pastor Chad's out in California, as I said, but it's important that we hear from him. So he asked me to share his convictions, and these are his words. We will continue to stand on the foundation of God's Word and God's design. We will continue to be biblically motivated, not politically motivated. And we will not panic, nor will we neglect God's principles. We will strive to be loving and countercultural, as Christ has always called the church to be. So let's pray about this. Father, we need your help. John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you could do nothing. 
So all of our worry and hand-wringing and all of our ranting is going to accomplish nothing unless we abide deeply in Christ. So help us repent where we need to repent. And help us to stand for truth where we need to stand for the truth. And help us to love in the ways that we need to love. And help us to be missionaries cleverly disguised out there in this culture who can bring a countercultural message to a world that is sexually broken. God, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to actually be like the first century church more now than ever. As we take this message of a redeemer to a world that so desperately needs redemption. So give us grace to do this. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how many times have you made resolutions that you couldn't keep? <laughs> you know, I'm going to get in shape. I, I'm going to eat clean. But that ice cream keeps calling my name at 10 p.m. every night while I'm watching TV. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? We try, don't we? We try to overcome our judgmentalism and our self-righteousness. We try to overcome our bitterness and our anger and chewing on old wounds and unforgiveness. We try to overcome our gluttony and our pride and our envy and greed and materialism. We try to overcome our lust and our worldly lifestyles, our sexual sin and our pornography. I mean, we've got a big long list of things that we're trying to overcome. And often it seems like, you know, I'm taking two steps forward and then I'm taking three steps back. Often that's what it's like. The pain of our sins hurt, it disappoints us, it disappoints the people around us, and we think it disappoints God. So I want to ask you today, what is it that you're trying to overcome? I want you to lock in on maybe just one thing, one thing that you're fighting, and you can't quite seem to get traction, you can't gain ground, you're falling behind. Lock in on something, okay? Because I don't want you to waste this next half hour. How do you approach this? Some of us, we just grit our teeth and we try harder to defeat the dark side. Lots of us have tried to obey the law of God, what the Bible says about life, through sheer willpower. And then we just beat ourselves up for our failures and we become duty-driven, joyless, miserable people who don't live up to what we want to be and we can't forgive ourselves for our failures. And then others of us just kind of like cave in to sin. And we go, well, this Christian life might work for other people, but it just doesn't work for me. And guess what? That crowd is miserable too. Disappointed with themselves, maybe even disappointed with God. And so we've decided that the fight is just not worth it. You know, I want to I draw to you a diagram that's been helpful to me. It says in Isaiah chapter 35 that we're supposed to walk a highway and the highway is the highway of holiness. Now, the highway of holiness has ditches on both sides. And uh, one ditch we could call the ditch of legalism. And this is for the people who, uh, they're going to they're gonna try hard, and they're going to do more to try to overcome their sin, to try to be obedient to God. And you don't want to fall into that ditch because what you'll end up with is misery. You're going to be a miserable follower of Christ. The other side 
And this is a big fancy word, it's a ditch over here too. It's called antinomianism. <laughs> antinomianism. And anti is a word that means against. Namas is the Greek word for law. So the idea here is this is a person who's kind of like against the law. Uh, this, is, this could describe the person who has just kind of, you know, they've, they've caved in and they, they give up. Now, here's what happens with this person. This person also <laughs> ends up in misery. And so the idea is, I want to stay on the highway of holiness because this is the place of joy. This is the place of victory. And I don't know what the percentages might be, but I'm thinking that well, maybe 40% maybe, uh, of the people are on the antinomian side of things. I'm just going to give up, cave in. There are a few verses in the Bible that I'm going to try to obey, but trying to obey all the verses of the Bible? Nah, not so much. And maybe 50% of people are on the legalism side. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be better. And maybe about 10% of us here have actually figured out how to walk the highway of holiness, the right way for the right reasons. Where are you? Because I, I think sometimes we can kind of veer from ditch to ditch. <laughs> you know, you hear a strong message, like maybe you heard from Pastor Josh last week, and you're going, oh, I don't want to try really, really hard, and you're in the ditch of legalism. And you try that for a while, and it doesn't really work, and so you then you go, well, why bother? I'm just going to give up and cave in. And now you're in the ditch of antinomianism. And so we veer sometimes back and forth from ditch to ditch, and we never really stay on the road toward holiness. Now, what is the common denominator between the people who are in the ditch of antinomianism and the people that are in the ditch of legalism? I think it's an inability to understand the function of the law of God in the life of a believer. And we're going to talk about that today in Romans chapter 7. So open your Bibles there, Romans chapter 7. We have this misunderstanding about the proper relationship of the people of God to the law of God. Because the commandments, the regulations, the precepts, and the guidelines are given to us by God, not because He wants something from us, but because He wants something for us. He wants us to experience love and joy and peace and all those good things. And it happens when we obey His law the right way. God wants something better for us than legalism, than the misery caused as we try to obey God through sheer willpower. And God wants something better for us than antinomianism, than the misery that is caused as we give up and cave in to our sin. There's a third way. The highway of holiness. Freed from the law. Now, Romans chapter 7. In this chapter... Paul is actually responding to some unjust accusations that some people are making as a result of this truth. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ. In Romans 7, he's addressing the allegation, hey, wait a minute, you're saying if we're saved by grace through faith in Christ that the Old Testament law doesn't matter anymore, that we don't actually have to keep it. So today in Romans 7, we're going to see five uses of the law. We're going to go through 1 through 3 pretty quickly, and then we're going to spend some more time on 4 and 5. So Jesus uses the law first to correct me, to correct me. Now let's go down to verse 7, last part. Paul says, If it had not been for the law, 
I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, you know what coveting is, right? That's wanting what you don't have. Paul says, there was a time in my life that I thought I was actually good, that I thought that I was actually righteous. But then I came face to face with the law, one of the Ten Commands in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not covet. And once I understood the spirit of that law, God began to show me that my life was filled with all kinds of coveting. Now this is true, right? You shall not covet. It's easy for us to go, check, you know, I'm pretty good with that one. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Not so fast. Are you really content? Are you really content with your lot in life? Are you really content with your reputation or your ministry even? Are you content with your level of influence? Are you content with your spouse? I mean, you might not want a different one, but you just want that one to act differently, right? Are you content with your kids' grades, with your kids' friends, with your kids' choices, with your kids' behaviors, with your kids' successes? Are you content with your house and your car and your IRA? See, when you start thinking about what you shall not covet really means, you know, whoa, God gave me this law to correct me. God uses the law to correct me. Second, God uses the law to convict me. Skip all the way down to verse 13. Did that which is good then, he's talking about the law. The law is good. God's laws and rules and regulations are good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Not only am I corrected, but I'm convicted. The law of God shows us that we're sinful beyond measure. Now, a lot of us like to go, well, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm just a little sinner. Paul wrote half the books in the New Testament. And his attitude was, I'm sinful beyond measure. Now, if Paul would say that about himself, last I checked, I hadn't written anything that got into the Bible, okay? I should be able to say that about myself. See, what Paul does with the command, you shall not covet, we could do with all the other commands in this list of ten, right? You shall not murder. Well, I haven't done that one, not so fast, because Jesus interprets that law in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, if you're angry, angry with your brother without cause, then you've broken this law, because that anger is murder in your heart. You should not commit adultery. Oh, whew, never done that one. Check, not so fast, because Jesus says, if you lust after a person in your heart, then you're guilty of adultery. Uh, honor your father and mother. The first time you thought your parents were ignorant and old-fashioned, you broke that command, right? And on and on it goes with every single command in the list of ten. But not only the ten commands, but the 613 other commands in the Old Testament. You say, well, but I don't know them all. Well, you're guilty even if you don't know that you've broken them. I mean, I mean this week, Marianne says, did you see this letter? I said, what is it? I looked at it, had a picture of my car. I was driving a little too fast somewhere in Cleveland, and it's going to cost me 100 bucks. I didn't know I broke the law, but I got caught, right? 
I am guilty beyond measure. John Gerstner was a church history professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was once at a church teaching from Romans, and he expounded on the law. He was exposing people's sin. After the service, a woman came up to him, and she held her hand up with her index finger and her thumb about a half inch apart, and she said, Dr. Gerstner, you make me feel this big. And Dr. Gerstner replied, but madame, that's too big. That's much too big. Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will send you to hell? See, we're supposed to feel this big, right? Index finger and thumb together. Because before a holy God, we are sinful beyond measure. He uses the law to correct me. He uses the law to convict me. And he uses the law to condemn me. Now this is in um, verses 8 through 11. Last part of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Stop there. There was a time in Paul's life when he thought, well, I'm good to go with God. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that he once saw himself as blameless. He was like a big shot religious leader back in the day. He thought, I'm a perfect law keeper. So Paul sees himself as alive. He's apart from the law in the sense that it had not yet bore down on his conscience to correct him and convict him and condemn him. Last part of verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So he thought he's alive and sin's dead, but then the law hit him. Bam! And he realized his sin is very much alive and he is very much dead. He says, I'm not right with God. I'm disobedient to God. I'm a lawbreaker. I deserve the wrath of God and the wages of sin is death. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. God gave us his law to correct us, convict us, condemn us in order to strip us of all self-righteousness so that we would flee to Christ to save us. He uses the law to correct me, convict me, condemn me. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. Jesus uses the law to convert me, to convert me, to convert me to Christ. Now, we're going to go back up to verses 4 through 6 here. He says in, four, in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him, to Christ, who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So after I've been corrected, convicted, and condemned... I'm going to give up trying to earn my way to heaven through good deeds. And I'm going to stop lying to myself that I'm okay with God because my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and I keep God's rules so well. I die to law keeping. And so I give myself to Christ. I belong to Him, to the one who died on the cross to save me and forgive me. And now because I'm connected to Christ and His resurrection, I can bear fruit for God, not by self-effort, but by Christ's dependence. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So he's saying here that apart from Christ, trying to really hard to obey, it just doesn't work because I have these sinful passions, I have these sinful inclinations and they work through my mind and my 
mouth and my ears. They work through my hands and feet. They work through my heart, my sexuality. And they make more and more decay and death. Verse 6 is really good. But now we are released from the law. I don't have to obey the law because Christ has already obeyed it for me. I want to obey the law. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Around here at church, we could talk about living new. This is the way to live new. I don't have to obey God. I now want to obey God so I can serve in the new way, not the old way. I can live new. Now, theologians talk about two kinds of obedience. And I want you to define where you are. Okay? The first one is legal obedience. That's the old way of the written code. The second one is evangelical obedience. This is good news obedience. And this is the new way of the Spirit. So legal obedience, I'm going to do more. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be good through my self-effort, and I will be right with God. And the result is what the Bible calls dead works. If we try hard to be good, if we try to keep the Ten Commandments thinking that that's going to make us right with God, we're just going to find ourselves falling short, and the law will therefore condemn us, and we'll never know if we did enough. Evangelical obedience though, is an obedience that is grounded in and motivated by and energized through the gospel. Christ has died in my place to forgive me of my sins. And He arose again to justify me. So now, I want to obey God out of a sense of joy and gratitude. I know I can never do enough, but that's okay. Because I'm trusting in Jesus who has already done enough for me and a funny thing happens. When we begin to live this way, the pressure's off and we perform better. We get better. So which is your experience in trying to obey God and overcome that thing that you identified at the beginning of the message? What's your experience? One or two? Legal obedience or evangelical obedience? You say, well, how do I know? Does your effort to be obedient bring you more misery? or more joy. That's the way you can tell. Because I now belong to Christ and His Spirit lives in me, because I've been converted, I can now live new and obey the law of God out of a heart of gratitude. And in this room there are people you've not yet come to Christ. You've not yet been converted to Christ. You're trying hard to be good, but you, you've not given yourself fully You've not surrendered fully to Christ. And in your program and on the screen is a prayer that maybe you can pray today. Let's look at it on the screen. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that your law is good and right and holy. I admit that I've been a lawbreaker. Yet I know that you still love me as the just and justifying judge. You sent your son to die on the cross as a substitute to pay for all my lawbreaking. Today I gratefully receive the gift of salvation. Now I want to obey your law. Help me stay connected to Christ so I can more and more live according to the law of love. Loving you and loving others. In Christ's name, amen. Maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that before. And if not, today is your day. Pray the prayer. Check the box in your program. Let us know. We'd love to help you grow. Put it in the offering basket when it comes around a little later. He uses the law to correct me, convict me, condemn me, convert me. 
Now this fight against sin, this fight to obey the law of God, it's not easy. It's not automatic. It is a struggle. And I resonate with what Pastor Josh said last weekend. He taught us to be at war with sin. Sin isn't just an annoying neighbor. He said our spiritual lives will look less like the beaches of South Carolina and more like the beaches of Normandy. Our spiritual lives are not like a golf course, but like a battlefield. So even though we're converted to Christ and can now live new, the battle to obey the law of God, not through self-effort, but through Christ's dependence, it's still a struggle. So that's why this last point, point number five, is so necessary. Jesus also uses the law to connect me. He uses the law to connect me to Christ. He wants to connect me to himself. Because you see, I have no chance to keep the law, to stay on the highway of holiness apart from Christ. Because apart from him, I can do nothing. So we come to a controversial section in Romans chapter 7. Some people say that, we're going to, that, that what we're going to read is the way Paul described himself before he connected to Christ. And others say, no, no, no. He's talking about the ordinary struggle in the life of every believer after they have come to Christ. See if you can identify with Paul's experience. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What's he saying? Very simply, the good I want to do, I don't. And the evil I don't want to do, I do. Now, am I the only one in the room that can identify with this? Are you with me? I think this is like the normal experience for followers of Christ, right? Listen, a struggle continues in the life of the believer until the day we go to heaven. In fact, the more advanced you are in Christ, the more mature you are in Christ, the more deeply concerned about your sin and your law-breaking you'll be. And if a person claims to be a follower of Christ, but they do not struggle against sin, I'm just not going to stop sleeping with her. It's not that big of a deal. Then that might be a sign you're not really justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The struggle against sin is a sign that you're truly saved. No struggle, no salvation. But if there is a struggle, that's a good sign. It's a good thing. You say, why? Because the struggle serves as a reason to connect us more and more deeply to Jesus, who is our justifying and sanctifying Savior. We're, we're living in this in-between time right now. We have this capacity to live new, but the downward drag of the world and the flesh and the devil calls us to live old too often. We do what we don't want to do, and we don't do what we do want to do, and that ought to make us feel wretched. It made Paul feel wretched. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am. 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That flesh, that evil dragon in the cave of your heart, that flesh has been defeated. He's been dealt a fatal blow by Christ when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But the dragon, our flesh, is still breathing fire. He's dying, and he will die, but he can still do great damage. And so Jesus wants us to deepen our connection with him so that together by his strength, we can continue to fight with the sword of the Spirit until that old dragon is finally finished off. That's what's going on here. So stay connected to Christ. Now I want us to take us back to this big word that Josh taught us from Romans chapter 6. And the word is consider. Consider. The key to freedom from sin, the key to keeping the law in an evangelical way, the key to staying on the highway to holiness is this. Every day, all the time, consider, account, reckon, and analyze that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I have to remind myself of the gospel. I have to think deeply about the implications of the gospel in me and for me. I must reckon these things or consider these things to be true. And as I do this, the power of Christ is released in me and I have this greater ability to obey the law of God. Not the old way of just trying hard and doing more, but the new way of bearing fruit by the Spirit. Now in your program is an affirmation of gospel truth from the book of Romans. It's inside a little box on the page in your program. I want to issue a very specific challenge for you today. Would you somehow remind yourself of these truths three times a day over the next seven days? All right, just pretend like I'm the doctor and I've given you a prescription. Take it to the drugstore, get it filled, and then take the pill. Because I believe it'll make a big difference in your life. So for once in your life, do what the pastor says to do. All right? Thank you. So let's just read through these truths together. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not in my notes anywhere. I'm sorry. <clears throat> um, I may, maybe I better write that down. Um, no. You guys got that for free. Let's just read through this affirmation. Here we go. I have been made right with God. All right, read it with me. I have been made right with God. I am justified by grace through faith. I have been forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future. I have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I have peace with God. I can hope in God. I have died to sin. I have been raised to walk in newness of life. I can present my members as instruments of righteousness. I have been released from the law from having to do more and from having to try harder to please God. Even though I still struggle with sin, I can now seek to serve God and others in the new way of the Spirit. I mean, what if you actually did read this through three times a day for the next seven days? Uh, just go on a spiritual experiment. And then maybe you can tell me, you know, ask yourself at the end of the seven days, has my obedience to God has keeping the law of God been harder, easier, or about the same? Try it.
I don't think it's going to hurt, but I really do think it'll help. I love a story about how St. Augustine defeated sin and temptation. Before his conversion, Augustine felt pulled in two directions. He was pulled toward the Lord by his mother, Monica, who was a saintly woman, and he was pulled toward sin by a mistress. And the conflict was long and terrible, and Augustine went back and forth. But everything changed when Augustine heard some words from the book of Romans. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what I'm asking you to do with this affirmation. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he did that. He believed it was counted to him as righteousness. And immediately he told his friend, Olypius, I have come to faith in Christ. And they went and told Augustine's mother, Monica, and she was glad. The next day, Augustine went down uh, the street in Carthage's town, and he met the woman who had been the source of so much temptation. He met the mistress. And she wanted to pull him away immediately for a fling. And in those days, that might have meant several weeks of sensual pleasure. And Augustine said, no thank you. She thought, well, maybe he didn't recognize me. So she called out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he says, yes, I know. But it is not I. I am not the former I. And you know what he's doing here? He's considering these truths in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. Come back next Sunday. You're going to hear some great stuff about Romans 8. Of course, we don't know what Augustine said to himself that day. The former mistress tried to seduce him. But maybe he said something like this. I used to be a person who was a slave to sex. And I used to be a person who tried hard to resist, but I couldn't. But now, I'm dead to sin. And I'm alive to God. And I don't have to obey God in the old way. I've been set free to obey God in a new way by the power of the Spirit. I don't need this. I am free not to live according to lust, but according to love. I am not the former I. And this is the way we have to learn to talk to ourselves when the ice cream is calling for us at 10 p.m. This is practical for the temptation that you are facing. Will you consider, reckon, account these truths to be true about you? Walk on the highway of holiness. It's not by trying harder. It's by trusting more. Jesus, I pray that you'll help us with this. We can't do this apart from you. In Jesus' name, amen.